Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, and chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, and 18 to 22. Hear God's word to us. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Tyler, and I am one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you all today in the midst of March Madness. I just have to say it, but as an IU alum, I had a great day yesterday. <laughs> and I, I hope you all are doing well in whatever bracket pool you may or may not be in. Uh, February 14th, 2014, was a Valentine's Day to remember. Uh, I'd been looking forward to it for months. The entire day was planned morning, afternoon, and night, and I awaited its arrival with tiptoe anticipation. See, I, I was giddy with excitement. I had told all my friends my plans. I knew what I was going to eat and what I was going to wear. I was so excited for Valentine's Day to come because I would be spending it with someone who was very, very special to me. Uh, perhaps you know her, Claire Underwood from the Netflix series, House of Cards. <laughs> Anyone, you see the, the second season of House of Cards debuted online on Valentine's Day. And so I, being a, being a fan of the show, I had set aside 13 hours of my life to watch every single episode in order in one sitting. Uh, it was a great day for me. It was a long day, but it was a good day because House of Cards is my kind of show. It ranks right up there with the West, West Wing, which is another political drama I really enjoy. You see, you could say I find these kinds of shows fascinating because I find politicking fascinating. I'm so intrigued with the way that coalitions are formed and votes are won and campaigns are organized. It, it just absolutely draws me in. And so in no time, I find myself uh, just drawn into the processing and the planning and the scheming and the strategizing. And perhaps that's why this week's passage of scripture really stood out to me. 
I think that could be why Matthew chapter 8 really drew me in and captured my attention because as I read and reread the entire chapter in preparation for our time together this morning, I realized that Jesus was a bad campaigner. I mean, really, he was. When he had a chance to grow his popularity, he seemed to ignore that chance. And when he had the opportunity to recruit popular and prestigious people to his crowd, he, he kind of ignored it. You see, Jesus was a bad campaigner. If you don't believe me, I mean, just real quick, look at the first verse in Matthew chapter 8, 8, 1. It says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Jesus starts the chapter day. We're looking at the whole chapter this morning, and he starts it with great crowds following him. And then look at the last verse of the chapter. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What happened? What happened? You see, as I read and reread Matthew 8 in preparation for our time, I realized that Jesus was a bad campaigner, which prompted me to, to wonder, I wonder if perhaps this bad campaigning was on purpose. Because you see, if Jesus was the most brilliant human to ever live, and I believe he was, if Jesus was the most brilliant human to ever live, he certainly would have known how to mobilize a crowd and, and capitalize on his momentum and launch a new campaign, right? Jesus was the most brilliant human if he was sharper than Hammurabi and wiser than Cicero and, and more brilliant than Machiavelli, if he was uh, more intellectually capable than all the great political theorists in history. If Jesus was the most brilliant human being that ever lived, he certainly would have known how to win and keep and mobilize a crowd, but that's exactly what he does not do. It just can't be disputed. Jesus was a bad campaigner because his crowds ultimately vanish. But in the end, I think that this bad campaigner proved himself to be the greatest king to ever live. And that's where our time this morning will get interesting. But before we can get there, we've got some work to do because we're going to be looking at the entire narrative of Matthew 8, tracing the outline of Jesus's bad campaign and then discovering why things went the way they did. It, it's a lot of ground to cover, so if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you get it open and ready in Matthew 8? We're going to be hopping around a bit, and I promise to be the best tour guide that I can possibly be. Uh, we'll be starting in 8 verse 1. It's on 813 uh, page 813 in our community Bibles. But before we jump in, I want to do a little catch-up for where we've been because for the past four months, we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel. We've seen that Jesus came to earth to bring good news for all people. That's where we started last December. And then we saw that Jesus established this upside-down kingdom where those who were poor in spirit and those who were weak and those who were meek were called blessed, right? That was the upside-down kingdom series. And last week, we finished our careful study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most brilliant sermon, the most famous sermon ever, really. And as we listened to Jesus' words, we came to understand that at the heart of the matter, it's always a matter of the heart. That who we are is more important than what we do, right? And that Jesus, think last week, that Jesus wants to renovate our souls down to their foundation, building instead a, a new life with new ethics and a new way of relating with God and with each other and with our world, right? That's where we've been, and it's been a long and incredible journey. But this morning, we're beginning a new stage in that journey. We're starting a new mini-series in Matthew in our, in our long, comprehensive study. And so starting today, 
And for the next few weeks, we're going to discover that this upside-down kingdom that Jesus came to announce has an unlikely king, a king who doesn't quite resemble our usual expectations of what a leader does and how a leader acts. And it starts this morning again in Matthew 8, verse 1. So let's go there now. Matthew 8, 1. We already read it once. But it says, when he came down, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Don't miss this. Immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, at the height of his popularity, Jesus had a large following. He had mass marketability. He was the buzzworthy newsmaker, the talk of the town, on the cover of magazines and trending on Twitter. Jesus was a star. He'd just given the sermon of a lifetime, and now the crowds were interested in what he had to say. Now they were curious what this captivated carpenter uh, was talking about and what he wanted them to do with their lives. And if Jesus were taking advice from the political strategist on House of Cards, he would know that this is a brilliant opportunity. While the crowds are interested, while they're following, this is where you consolidate your support base, where you shore up your numbers, where you make sure that you're going to win the campaign, right? While the, crowd, while the attention of the crowd is on you, this is a great opportunity. One would expect that Jesus might launch a new initiative or announce a new campaign slogan at such a moment, but that's not what Jesus does. Instead, look at verse 2. A leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. At the height of his post-Sermon on the Mount popularity, Jesus touches a leper, which is an absolutely awful idea if you're interested in keeping a crowd around. <laughs> because in the ancient world, leprosy was one of the most contagious and feared diseases. I mean, and at that time, before there was antibacterial soap or hand sanitizer placed all around the church, in those days, when you didn't have that, the only way to avoid contracting leprosy was to keep your distance. And so ancient law actually required that lepers live outside the city, and it said that they had to wear torn clothes and keep their hair undone so that you would have a visible marker that there's someone to stay away from. And actually, it was, it was audible, too. They were commanded to shout, unclean, unclean, when they came near a crowd of people. I mean, can you imagine the stigma that a leper experienced? Can you imagine what it felt like to be entirely ostracized from society? I mean, it's a scary thing. Part of me thinks we can't quite imagine it because we just live in such an age where I don't think there's a disease that feels as threatening as leprosy did at that time. I mean, perhaps maybe, maybe Ebola or, or Zika virus as these news stories have come up. If that'll help you, I mean, I, I don't, it's not a perfect analogy. But I only mention those to say the scary disease. I mean, think about the news reports and think about if someone from our church was planning a trip to some place where Zika virus is actively spreading. Wouldn't you say, hey, Maybe you need to reconsider that plan, right? Out of love and concern for that person. That's how leprosy was. You would make plans to avoid it. You would question someone's judgment if they went near it. But at the height of his post-sermon popularity, a leper comes and Jesus doesn't move. I mean, this is amazing. You've got to imagine it. As this leper approaches, shouting, unclean, unclean, you can be certain that the crowds dissipated because they didn't want to touch the leper. They didn't want to catch what the leper had, but Jesus stayed put. 
And as this leper came forward with his torn clothes and unkept hair, Jesus didn't move and allowed the leper to get so close that he could touch him. It's absolutely remarkable. And the leper says, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and making contact with his leprous skin, healed him. A popular figure holding his ground to interact with a contagious and infectious outcast. I mean, I'm sure the crowds were wondering, what's up with this guy? This Jesus, he gives a great speech, but, but this is foolish. I'm sure the crowds begin to wonder if he was someone worth following, but Jesus didn't care. He's a bad campaigner after all. And so he disregarded the crowds, and he took compassion on one sick and infectious man. He let him come near, and he touched and healed him. And the bad campaign doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse 5. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, don't let this detail pass by either. Jesus was approached by a centurion, by a commander in the Roman army, by the leader of the oppressive regime that had pushed down Jesus's own people. Don't miss that. Jesus is approached by an enemy military leader whose only job it was was to ensure that Rome continued to rule the region with an iron fist. And you can be certain, again, that as the centurion came forward, the crowds would dissipate. Because who wants to be around if the centurion's coming to arrest Jesus or disperse the crowds that are following him through the city, right? But the centurion approaches, and again, Jesus stays put, and he hears the centurion's request, a request for healing. And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, oh, you've oppressed my people, so I'm not interested in helping you. He doesn't say, I don't help oppressors. Jesus replies, I will. I will come and heal your servant. At the height of his popularity, Jesus is approached by a leader of the enemy's army. And instead of ignoring him, and instead of dismissing him, and instead of refusing service to try to score some political points, Jesus helps him. I mean, this is no way to run a campaign. Uh, but it's typical Jesus because Jesus is a bad campaigner. He does exactly what you do if you weren't trying to win a popularity contest. And again, the poor campaign continues real quick now. Matthew 8, 19, we read it once that this scribe comes up to Jesus. So someone who's educated, someone who has a position of prominence in the community, a scribe comes up to follow Jesus. And instead of just actively recruiting, Jesus says, oh, it's really hard. Jesus kind of sends this scribe away. Doesn't make great sense. And then in Matthew 8, 28, two demon-possessed men who were so fierce that no one would pass by them, the text says, they come near Jesus to meet him. And again, Jesus draws close to detested outsiders, and, and he cast their demons into a herd of pigs. And that's what leads us to Matthew 8:34, where the entire city comes out and begs Jesus to leave their city. I mean, Jesus's campaign is in a tailspin, if we're judging by House of Cards standards. The crowds are diminishing. The approval numbers are falling. His favorability is now at an all-time low. This is no way to run a campaign, which leads me to believe that Jesus wasn't running a campaign. 
He wasn't trying to win an election. He wasn't trying to appeal to the majority. He wasn't after votes. I don't think he is after votes. And this is where it starts to get uncomfortable. Because I like a leader who's accountable to me. I like a leader who wants my votes. I don't want a leader who will do anything to get my vote, but I'd like a leader who wants to do some stuff for me, who wants to flex a little bit to meet my needs and my opinions. I like a leader who's accountable to me, and the odds are that you do too. This is kind of the American way, after all. We want our leaders to be accountable. We want to retain some level of control, because even though we may not hold an office, or hold a, a specific title. When our leaders are accountable, we have a say. Our opinion counts. But that's not how it is with Jesus. He's not interested in popular opinion. He's not after my vote or after your vote. He doesn't need our approval because Jesus is already king. King over all with absolute authority and absolute power. Jesus isn't after our vote because he doesn't need it. He's already got his throne. And that's the other big theme of Matthew 8. I mean, the gospel writer goes out of his way to emphasize Jesus' total authority, and that's where we're headed next. But before we get there, I just want to say this. I want to be very clear this morning. I know I've repeated a lot that Jesus is a bad campaigner. And I believe it's true. I believe he was. I believe he didn't take opportunities other folks might have in order to win a popular crowd and crowd support. I think Jesus was a bad campaigner. But as I say that, I don't want to suggest for a moment that those who campaign regularly, that those who are involved maybe in the political process or who are politicians, I don't want to suggest at all that those folks at a, at a national level, at a state level, at a local level are bad people because they campaign. Does that make sense? I mean, Jesus may have been a bad campaigner, but not all people who campaign are bad. In fact, there are many, I'd say the majority of folks in politics are noble and wise and capable and shrewd people who do good work on behalf of us. And, and we as a church should be folks that want to identify those good leaders and support them in their service and celebrate their accomplishments and vote for them as we see fit. I mean, does that make sense? We have to be supportive and engaged in our political process because far too many folks have made kind of just an easy dismissal that politics by its nature is inherently bad and it just draws those who are inherently dishonest and that could not be farther from the truth. We don't believe that here at Christ Community. We believe that political vocations are necessary uh, to, to human flourishing, that they accomplish good work. And so it just felt like in the season we're in as a nation, as I'm using all these campaign metaphors, that that needed to be said. Again, Jesus was a bad campaigner, but not all who campaign are bad. And we should, as a church, support our public leaders and our political processes and be involved. Um, is that clear? Okay, so now... We're going to look back at Matthew 8 at Jesus' authority. Again, Jesus isn't after political authority because his authority is of a totally other kind. And that's what Matthew stresses now in his gospel. It's the other theme, Jesus' absolute authority. And again, we're going to just walk quickly back through the chapter. Let's start in Matthew 8, verse 3. We're back in that story of the leper. It's the first story we encountered this morning. And notice when Jesus heals the leper, the text says, the man's leprosy left him immediately immediately. Did you catch that? I mean, that's 
power. And when the Roman centurion requested Jesus' assistance, Jesus was able to heal that centurion's servant at a distance. Did you catch that part of the story? Because Jesus is so astounded by the centurion's faith that Matthew writes that Jesus pronounced healing right there as they're interacting in the street. And then Matthew 8, 13, look at this. And the servant was healed all the way back at the centurion's home. The servant was healed at that very moment. And Jesus isn't even in the same place as the servant and he's healing him. Did you catch? I mean, that is power and authority. And in verses 23 through 27, we see Jesus asserting absolute authority even over the natural elements. Indeed, Matthew writes that Jesus and his disciples, they're out at sea and this great storm comes. And as his disciples are panicking, Jesus rises and he says, why are you afraid? And he rebukes the wind and the waves. And the text says there was great calm. And notice how Matthew's retelling of this story ends, verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Do you get it? Jesus has total authority. He is king over all. And this is what Matthew is emphasizing in this chapter 8 uh, of his gospel account. He wants it to be so clear that Jesus isn't running some kind of campaign for popularity. He's not after votes because he doesn't need them. He's already king over all with authority over sickness, over any dark powers, over the weather, over all that there is. Jesus is king. And as king, he wants your allegiance. He wants you to follow him. Now, how do we know this is what Jesus wants? Well, it's because it's what Matthew's placed right in the center of this chapter. I mean, quite literally, the, the verses in the middle of this chapter, 18 to 22, talk about following Jesus. And why does that matter? Because when you wanted to make a point in that time, you'd place kind of the, the, the place of emphasis was in the center. I mean, in Western culture now, when we really want to emphasize a point, what do we do? We put it at the beginning of what we're saying and at the end of what we're saying. So here's a hypothetical example that may or may not have happened when I was in high school. <laughs> Dad, I'm fine. Everything's all right. But I broke the rearview mirror off the CRV because I was listening to music too loud and I hit a construction barrel and it flew off and I don't know where it is, but I'm fine and everything's all right. Okay. Hypothetical. <laughs> in that situation, what are we emphasizing? What am I trying to say? Right, I'm fine and everything's all right. That's what we do. We put what's most important at the beginning and at the end. But in Eastern cultures, at the time when Matthew was writing his gospel, the place of prominence was in the center of your discourse. If you wanted to make something stand out, you'd put it right in the middle. And so in the middle of this whole chapter about miracles and authorities and themes, right in the middle, we get Jesus encountering two people that are interested in following him. It's the heart of the text, and let's read it together. It says in Matthew 19, And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What an odd response. A scribe, an educated person, has come to Jesus and said, Hey, count me in. And instead of saying, yes, hop on board, Jesus says, well, you can follow me if you want, but I want you to know I don't even have a place to lay my head. It's a real difficult journey that I'm on. 
It's going to be really, really hard. And then Matthew writes that another disciple came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. I can imagine that, that disciple thinking, what? Can I just take care of this important business at home first? I mean, I mean, you just said that there's not a real plan to this thing. There's no place to lay your head. It's not like you've got hotel reservations or anything. Can I just go bury my dad and then come back and, and catch up with wherever you are? But Jesus says, follow me. I need you to come now. I want your complete devotion. Don't miss this. These two episodes at the heart of Matthew 8, they're designed to tell us these two things, that following Jesus is difficult and that the only way to follow Jesus is completely, without compromise. And why? Why this complete devotion? Well, because Jesus is king over all. He's got absolute authority. He's not interested in our opinion or vote. His rule is certain and total. Jesus is king overall, and he wants our complete devotion. And I got to be quite honest with you, this could be terrible news. An unaccountable leader with total control. I mean, everything Matthew just said, this could be absolutely devastating news, that there is some kind of king of the universe, and his name is Jesus, and he doesn't care what you have to say, but he wants total authority in your life. This could be scary news if. Jesus wasn't as good as he really is. But Jesus is good. I mean, let's look back through Matthew 8 again very quickly, one last time, and see how this absolute king with unaccountable authority uses his total power. I mean, what's he do, this unlikely king? Well, first he heals a sick social outcast, and then he uses his power on behalf of an enemy leader. And then kind of a section we didn't touch on uh, in depth today, but that whole 14 through 17 section, Jesus heals so many people. All kinds of folks come to him and he heals them. And then he calms a raging storm. And then he frees two longtime captives from their, uh, longtime captains of their demons from their oppression. I mean, this is an absolute king who doesn't need your vote, but you don't need to fear because he's a good king. Jesus is a good king who only uses his authority for good. And I don't mean good king as in skilled, as if Jesus is a good king because he knows how to balance a budget or how to make things happen. I mean good as in kind, good as in gracious, good as in generous, good as in compassionate. He's a good king. In fact, he's, he's such a good king that he doesn't assert or force his power on anyone, at least not yet. I mean, the Bible says a day is coming where every knee will bow to King Jesus. And at that point, it's really, it's just going to be a natural reaction because his full power and full authority will be on complete display. There, there will really be nothing else logical to do but bow. But until then, this good and gracious king, he doesn't assert his power over anyone. He doesn't domineer humans. He, he allows us to come and, and offer ourselves to him, to follow him. He's so respectful, this good king. And so this morning, as our time in Matthew 8 draws to a close, I just have to ask you, is this good king your king? Is this good king 
Yorking. And I can imagine just a few responses in this room. I mean, first I can imagine some of you answering no. No, this good king is not my king. I'm not really interested in a king. I don't need a king in my life. I mean, even, even if he is as good as you say, I don't know, I, I don't really need your king. No, this king is not my king. And to you, I'd say, I get it. I get it. You're, you're a good person. Uh, you do good things. You care about your community. You've really got things together. Your life's not falling apart. I get it. I get it. And I get that religious people like me have stood up on stages like this and talked about Jesus' authority to assert their own power. I know that's been done so often. And so if there's any kind of skepticism, man, I get it. These discussions of power and authority, I know how loaded they can be. But I just want you to know that this morning, as I'm asking, is this good king your king? The reason I'm asking it is not because I think that following King Jesus will make your life better, that you need some kind of king because your life's a wreck, although I believe that's true, but that's not the main reason I'm saying it this morning. I'm asking, is this good king your king? Because I think he already is king. I just think that this is true. I think there's a king overall and that his name is Jesus and that is one who's given my life to try to speak on his behalf, that it's just, it's my job this morning to tell you this king is real and he has authority and your life might be fine. I know you might not need a new life coach. I'm not asking you to pick up a new life coach, get your life better. I'm just, just saying there's a king and he's real and has real power and his name is Jesus and he wants you to follow him. And man, I know that can breed all kinds of questions. So I just want to thank you. If your answer is no, I'm not interested in your king. Hey, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening, and I would love to talk more with you if you have any questions. Now, I can imagine there's others of you, when I ask this question, is this good king your king? You might answer, well, kind of. Kind of. I mean, I, I would say that Jesus is my king, but I'm not sure that I actually live like he's my king. I mean, when I think about all that we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount and the way that this king would want his citizens to live in this kingdom and being kind and gracious and not harboring hate, I mean, kind of. I would acknowledge him as king, but I'm not sure that I, I totally live that way as if Jesus were my king. And I know that's many of us. To you this morning, can I say this? What if for one week you lived like Jesus was king of your life with total authority and total control? What if for just one week you lived that way? And here's why I say it. I'm not asking you to dedicate kind of your whole life to it. I think those are thoughtful kind of decisions that we need to be careful about making. Those are, those are big commitments. But what if for one week you lived as if Jesus was king of your life with total authority. I mean authority over how you spend your money and authority over how you think about other people and authority over what you say at work and at your home and authority over your free time. I mean absolute authority. What if for one week you lived as if Jesus was total king? I mean here's why I recommend that. Because I think there are many of us that are convinced that following Jesus as an absolute king isn't possible. It's just not realistic. Not in 2016. You know, times have changed and the things he asked, they're, they're just too hard. I don't think you could really live as if Jesus were king. I think so many of us are convinced of that deep in our hearts. And so when I ask, what if for one week you lived as if Jesus was total king? I'm doing it, I'm asking that because I think that we could, we could kind of encourage ourselves or build up our spirits because I want you to know it is possible. It's incredibly difficult. But with the Spirit's power, 
and with a little bit of effort and discipline and with the support of a community group and with lots of prayer and with plenty of grace thrown in when we don't do it well, following Jesus completely, not perfectly, but completely with devotion, that is possible even in 2016. And so if that's you saying, well, I'm not sure that Jesus is total king of my life. I want him to be, but I'm not sure. Hey, what if just for one week you tried to live as if he was? You opened up your heart to the possibility that maybe there's a different way your life could be lived, and you just allowed the Spirit to do his work in you as that happened. What if just for one week, that's all I'm asking. I think that the Lord could really do some work in all of our hearts if we would make that kind of commitment. And then finally, I feel like there's some of you, if I ask if this good king, your king, I can hear you saying, well, sort of. Sort of. This, this king, I, I try to live as if Jesus is king in my life. I mean, I, I, I serve how I think he'd have me serve, and I try to live as if he'd have me live. But gosh, Tyler, if I'm honest, I'm not sure that the king that I follow is a good king. I think I've got King Jesus in my life, but he seems more like a, a domineering king, like a king who just makes me do what he wants. I, I'm not convinced that I've got a good King Jesus in my life. Can I say that I, uh, I am right where you are many days? And in those moments where I have to remind myself the king I'm trying to obey and follow is a good king. I mean, those are, those are real moments. And so here's just a suggestion for the rest of this week. What if for one week, in those moments where obedience seems difficult, where devotion seems a little too costly, or maybe you're just, you're just tired of obeying this king, in those moments, when those times of decisions come, what if you remember just one story from this Sunday's sermon, the story of that leper? I mean, that drew me in this week. How good is our good king to stand his ground as someone contagious approaches and to take compassion on that kind of person and to heal them? That's our good king. If you have a hard time doubting that King Jesus is a good king this week, when those moments come where it's time to obey, it's time to take a step that you know you should stay, take, but you're doubting if you're following a good king. Would you just remind yourself of the story of that leper and allow, again, our good king to come to your mind and for the spirit to work in your heart and for you to gain a greater understanding and deeper conviction about the goodness of our king because he is a good king. I mean, that's what Matthew chapter 8 tells me that this absolute king with authority over all, he's an unlikely king, but a good king. And this unlikely king, a week before his death, rode into Jerusalem knowing that he was about to be condemned to die. He entered a city where the crowds cheered one day, and they're going to shout, crucify the next. But this king, he didn't ignore his kingly duties. He didn't shirk his responsibilities. He didn't avoid what was lying ahead of him because he was compelled by love. The same love that Jesus had for that leper and the same love that Jesus had for that enemy centurion is the same love that, Je that compelled Jesus to the cross and it's the same love that he has for you and that he has for me. That is our good king. And so this next week, this Holy Week, a week 
focused on and set apart for reflection on this king's sacrificial death and victorious resurrection in that week? Will you acknowledge his absolute authority and his absolute goodness is king of your own life? Will you do that? Let's pray. King Jesus, you are king. There are many days I don't want to acknowledge your authority. And there are many days that I can forget your goodness. And Lord, it, I mean, it happens to all of us. It's so easy to forget that you're over it all, that though other things might seem to be in control of our lives and that we'd like to place ourselves in the driver's seat, that there is a king over all. How quickly we forget or ignore that. But Jesus, it's, it's been made so clear to us today. And so, Would you massage these truths gently into our hearts? Would you transform us into the kind of people that remember that we have a king and that live as if we have a king and that serve that king joyfully because we know that king is a good king. It's it's something we cannot do on our own, and so we're asking for your help. And we know that you want to do it, and so we trust you as our good king. Change us this next week, Lord. We ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen.